Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Escape the ordinary with green and blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic. Sponsor of the Irish Times Women's Podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savour. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. We're nearly there. It's nearly Christmas. And of course, it looks like we are hurtling towards another lockdown straight after that. We're well used to it at this stage, although your heart would go out to everyone in the hospitality industry, all the restaurants, also all the performers and artists and anyone involved in the arts, really. It's just been a devastating year uh, for them. And of course, there are thousands of others who have lost jobs and are facing into a really, really challenging year. The vaccination is coming, but you just hope it comes soon enough to keep certain businesses going. It's such a strange time. I don't know about you, but I veer from really getting into the Christmas spirit, uh, getting into total Christmas overload. And then I veer towards wondering what the point of it all is. Uh, And sometimes it feels like we're going through it more dutifully than merrily. But one thing that did actually cheer me was seeing that after decades, Joanne Hayes, who you'll remember and a lot of you will know very closely, Joanne Hayes was the woman who was wrongly accused of killing a baby in 1984 in the infamous Kerry Babies case. And just last week, she was given an apology and compensation for the decades of distress that that accusation caused her. And Hayes said she hoped that she and her family can start to put it all behind her now. She said in a statement that was read out to the court, it is my sincere hope and belief that after 36 years, the suffering and stress of this ordeal is now finally behind us. And I really hope Christmas is a better one for all of them. Later in this episode, we're going to be talking to writer Emma Gannon, whose latest novel, Olive, features a character who is ambivalent about having children. She told us why she wanted to focus on that particular subject. I'd seen lots of books about women who wanted to have children, but it didn't work out for them. I've interviewed a lot of those women and and I've done a lot of research into IVF. One of the characters is going through that. But really for Olive, I wanted her to be a woman who didn't have a reason, didn't need to justify it, felt like she was cornered at dinner parties and people going, but why? You'd make a great mother. And she's thinking, why are you quizzing me? Like, this is just something I don't want to do. We'll hear more from Emma Gannon later, but now we've finished our second season of The Big Night In, which was a huge success. And it really was a great thing to have during the second lockdown. It distracted us and gave us something to do every second Saturday night. Our last one was with the legendary broadcaster Olivia O'Leary and we wanted to bring you a few highlights of that great conversation. First, Olivia is telling us here why after 18 years she decided to leave Drive Time and stop doing those unmissable radio columns. Well, everything comes to an end and I'd been doing that column for 18 years and as a broadcaster, I know everything comes to an end and they were changing the programme 
And I, during the summer, I take a break always in the summer, had begun to think, do I want to keep doing this? Is it not time maybe for me to start to do something new? I mean, I'm 71. So whatever I'm going to do, I'd better do it now, you know, before it's uh, it, it's all too late. So it was pretty well a mutual agreement that it suited drive time, uh, who were changing their format. There was a two-person presentation thing. And it was going to be a much busier program um, and maybe a different sort of, um, of zeitgeist on it and whatever. So I think sort of mutually we decided okay you know it's been a it's been a lovely long run 18 years so maybe you know we'll, we'll both look on to something else. She also told us what she'd have written her column on when Golfgate happened and it made me wish I tell you made me really wish she had been on air at that time. I think it would have started ah lads because there were an awful lot of lads um, involved and I, I, I find it very difficult to believe that had there been more women TDs or parliamentarians there, uh, that they would have maybe stopped at the door and said, hang on here, we'd better consult the rules. Uh, are you sure this is safe? So, you know, I think there was a certain amount of, 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 of maleness going on there. And and I'm not being holier than thou. I, I, I would have stopped at the door, yeah. And I would have said, I don't think this is obeying the rules and I don't think it's safe and I think maybe I'll go home, which Enda Kenny in fairness to him did. But it was an indication, I'm afraid, that the rules don't apply to us. And and I'm not using words like arrogant. There were an awful lot of people there that I know and they're not arrogant people. Uh, They just got caught up in the moment. But still and all, it was very important, I feel, that a display was made, a point was made, an example was made, because by God, it made the rest of us toe the line. So I think it was actually quite important that they were as tough as they were about it. And, you know, it was it, it was hard on certain people. But this is a matter of life and death. And finally, in this last clip, Olivia brings us back to her days as a young journalist in RTE. And she told us a shocking story about a work golf trip she was on. I played golf ever since I was little. Um, So all the boys were going on the golf outing. I always did everything the boys did. So I said, yeah, I'm coming too. And uh, we stopped for uh, a coffee or whatever it was. And we were all sitting around. Some people were even having a drink in the morning. I don't know if I was. But um, one of the people who was with us, he wasn't an RTE person. He was a he was a journalist. Turned around to the others and said, uh, "Is Olivia the only person, only woman here?" And they said, "Yeah." And I said, "Yeah," to him. And he said, "Okay, boys, when is the gangbang?" And even the men who were there were embarrassed at this. And I. I passed it off. I finished my drink or my coffee and just went on and moved away. But it was said with such malice. And um, I remember thinking, do people really think like that? And I suddenly realised, yeah, sometimes they did. And the message was, listen, little girl, you might think you're great. But as far as this gang is concerned, you're just another sexual object. That's all you are. And it was meant to be demeaning. And... um, I never spoke to that man ever again. I don't know whether he's alive or dead. And, uh, and, and I don't ever want to speak to him again. 
What a woman, Olivia Leary. Thanks to her and thanks to you again and everyone who joined us for the Big Nights In. We'll hopefully be back with another season in spring. But before that, we are also delighted to be involved in organising Winter Nights, which is an Irish Times online festival that's happening from Monday the 25th of January to Friday the 29th of January with a few events each night and tickets for that would make a great pandemic Christmas present if you are still looking for ideas. Some of the guests we have for you are comedian Darrow Brian, Holocaust survivor Edith Eager. I'm going to be talking to her. First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, who'll be in conversation with Fintan O'Toole. We have Ross O'Carroll, Kelly creator Paul Howard, EU Commissioner Mairead McGuinness, and we have your man off CNN with his magic wall, John King. He's going to be chatting to Fintan O'Toole. So it's a really great lineup and we're very excited about it. To find out more and to get yourself those tickets, you can go to irishtimes.com forward slash winter nights. That's irishtimes.com forward slash winter nights. So we might hopefully see some of you there. Right now to today's episode. Emma Gannon is a writer, broadcaster and podcaster who's best known for her podcast Control-Alt-Delete and Sunday Times best-selling business book The Multi-Hyphen Method. In 2015, she landed her first book deal off the back of her then blog Girl Lost in the City. She's the author of five books and in 2020 she published her debut novel Olive, a modern tale about the obstacle course of adulthood, milestone decisions and the taboo about choosing not to have children. And here she is. Emma Gannon, we're delighted that you've joined us on the Women's Podcast. Uh, Delighted you're here to talk about your book, Olive, and a lot more as well. But first of all, maybe tell us about Olive, which is a novel about friendship, but also has something very unusual in a book um, that is in popular fiction, which is a child-free female protagonist. So tell me about how you got the idea. Yes, so Olive is our protagonist and she has just broken up with her boyfriend of 10 years because they met when they were young, they're in their 30s now and they suddenly start discussing whether they want to have a family. He does and she realises that she just doesn't want to have children. There's just nothing about it that appeals to her and she's always known but never really had the chance to express it and so she, they break up and that's not a spoiler that happens right at the beginning of the book. And really, we just go on a journey with Olive and all of her best friends, you know, are, are dying to be mothers. So she feels a bit alone. And I wanted to talk about that. Why did you want to talk about it, Emma? I mean, I, I was delighted to see a book like this because I have two children, uh, as many of the listeners will know. But I also think it's something not talked about enough, that choice to not have children, which is completely valid. And, uh, you know, sometimes when things were really tough in terms of parenting, I was thinking, oh, am I actually able for this? But it's not something we actually talk about very much. So is that kind of what inspired you, the fact that it's not a conversation we have enough? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I'd i seen lots of books about women who wanted to have children, but it didn't work out for them. I've interviewed a lot of those women and and I've done a lot of research into IVF. One of the characters is going through that. But really for Olive, I wanted her to be a woman who didn't have a reason, didn't need to justify it, felt like she was cornered at dinner parties and people going, but why? You'd make a great mother. And she's thinking, why are you quizzing me? Like, this is just something I I don't want to do. And I think for me, like the only person who represents like maybe an older Olive is like Elizabeth Gilbert and Eat, Pray, Love. And I just wanted to write a, yeah, like a millennial version of someone just, um, yeah, just feeling like society wasn't with it. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not someone who sort of, I, I, I sometimes wish I was, who thinks of life lessons or things, but some things I will be telling my daughters as they grow up is to never talk to someone about 
whether they if they think someone's pregnant so never assume someone's pregnant when they're not because that's happened to me lots of times where I've been told oh you must be pregnant but the other one is talking to anyone about children having them or not having them I just feel it's such a personal thing but we a society kind of looks at any woman especially in their 30s and assumes that this is something that they're going to do and has this massive surprise and shock if they don't and it's that assumption that really um, gets on my nerves, actually, even as, as a parent. I just find it so presumptuous and so out of order and rude, actually. Yeah. And it's funny because I'm getting married next year, fingers crossed, you know, permitting in this crazy world. And what's just interesting to me is just this presumption. And I don't find it too offensive because I know that it's like polite conversation and people are just trying to bond with you and actually if you're both mothers that's huge and you're already away with something to talk about I get it but the whole you know are you going to have a kid when are you going to have one it's just something I don't always want to be kind of met with immediately yeah and the other part of it is okay so that's one thing say if you're someone who's who's decided to be child-free I'm not saying you have but say in the book Olive has uh, but also so many people have issues with trying to conceive children who really desperately want them so to bring up that topic as well is kind of insensitive from that perspective because often the reason people don't have children and sometimes not all in all cases is because they've tried and haven't been able to and it's like poking a little stick into that wound when you just try to bring it up at a dinner party or in casual chat. It's true. And for Olive, I must say, I did a lot of research into interviewing child-free by choice women. So people that actively don't want children. And a lot of them knew from a really early age. And I interviewed them of all ages, like people in their 70s who were like, I don't, I don't regret it. I didn't want them and I still don't. And what's been interesting is just how they felt pitied. That, that came up a lot. People saying poor you and I get it if you're child free not by choice that is very upsetting for a lot of people through their lives but these women they are very unapologetic and I wanted to showcase them really yeah and it's like as if you know everybody say in their 40s women who are in their 40s or, or older or whatever I've somehow missed out or there's some part of their life that's missing which again I just think is a very arrogant view for someone who has kids to say you know like when I when I didn't have children I had um, nephews and nieces and had very close relationships and very a, a really big bond with them, I would say, and still have that bond now. And there's kind of this uh, sense that, oh, unless you have children, you won't really know this pure love kind of thing really used to get on my nerves because I don't believe that. I think love and those very, very deep kind of attachments can come in so many different forms. And yes, being a parent is a wonderful form of that, but it's not the only one. But again, uh, there is a kind of an arrogance about this having, you know, superseding all other forms of love or something. And I think that's an insecurity with child free women that they feel like, oh, God, I'm going to be left out and people are going to not invite me to the picnics and the, the, the stuff. And maybe they'll think it's boring. But actually, I mean, I speak as someone who doesn't have children and I'm an auntie and I absolutely love spending time with my friends' kids. And I hope, and this isn't me thinking I'm, um, you know, this isn't me being like arrogant, but I hope to add something to their lives. I would love to um, be like that person they can turn to or talk to and I can definitely buy them nice presents. Like it doesn't make you redundant. No, and you are, you are obviously in that role and you, you are not redundant, but it's just the kind of, anyway, I just think it's one of the other things that um, society tells women that they must do in order to fulfill their womanhood, you know, and it's just 
time, I think, finally, that we explode that myth. And I think your novel is a really good kind of salvo in that in that debate. But the book isn't just about that, because there's also lots about jealousy in, in the book, uh, which is a huge part of friendship. And there's various uh, sort of things on that vein. So tell us a little bit about your own take on jealousy, because it's such a common thing, especially, I think, maybe between women friends, where we kind of covet what the other has, or we feel we're not as successful. Or in this particular aspect, you know, Olive is looking around and feeling jealous of, of her friends who do get, uh, who do conceive and do have babies. Yes, so I wanted to paint a picture of four friends who for their whole lives had had the same milestones because you can't really be too jealous, I think, when you're just going through the same treadmill of growing up, you know, same school, pretty much same university. They all moved to London. Um, So they're all kind of equal and, you know, you get the odd boyfriend here and there, but there's nothing huge maybe to be too jealous of during that time. And then suddenly I think the jealousy comes from feeling left out, comparing yourself to people. I think that they just suddenly felt insecure about their life choices. And I think that's the really big theme of the book is they're all just doubting themselves constantly. One of them that's just had a new baby is looking at Olive and going, God, my career has gone down the pan a bit recently. And so it just makes me realise that sometimes you have like these three balls that you're juggling, work, friends, family, or, or motherhood, friends, work. And one is always not working out, it felt like. So they all had something to be jealous of. Yeah, it sometimes feels like being a woman is like always failing at something, no matter what you do. Whereas I don't know if men have the same kind of take on things. You know what I mean? That that we're, we're never fully uh, succeeding enough at, at all the bits. So therefore, we always have this nagging feeling that something's wrong. And I really, again, I just think that's something we have to let go of because perfection is not achievable in anything, you know, and that and life is messy and we're not always going to be firing on all cylinders. And I think you do that really, really well. But listen, Emma, let's go back to before this, because this is your first novel. Before that, you've been a very successful nonfiction writer. So tell us a bit about yourself and your background in terms of your other writing life. Yeah, so I used to work at Condé Nast and worked as a journalist for a few years. And then I wrote my first book called Control Alt Delete, which was like a young tale of growing up on the internet and um, then that turned into a podcast and then from there yeah I've basically really written about careers mental health the internet how we are in this world of massive change and lots of choice and how do we work out what what our lives want to be and how will they look so it's sort of covering almost like life design, (laughs) like how do we want to live right now? Because I think we're in an exciting time, even though it's a bit of a scary time. There's a lot on offer. Green and Blacks, wildly, deliciously organic. A selection of ethically sourced flavours combined with a rich cocoa intensity. Your book, The Multi-Hyphen Method, is kind of a bit ahead of its time because you're talking about the kind of it's almost about pivoting and which is such a word at the moment in the pandemic but also about just channeling your entrepreneurial spirit and and being able to move into different sort of uh factors of your work life what what are you trying to say in that book and why was that important so that book is a manifesto to basically be more than one thing if you want to be so i I kind of think it's strange how we're sort of told at school and uni and definitely in America to pick one thing 
Just pick one thing and then do that for the rest of your life. And I just feel like we're all so multifaceted. We're all so much more fluid and different and we change our minds and we go through different chapters. So it's very, very odd to say, go and get one job for life. So it's a book about, yeah, being doing multiple things. Um, it's also a book about side projects, because for me, I really loathe that advice of like, quit your job, follow your dreams. I wanted to offer something really practical to people based on what I did, which was start something on the side and then you can kind of transition over time, hopefully, and create your own job. And was it from the fact that you live a kind of multi-hyphen life? Because you, you by the sounds of things, you have your fingers in a few pies and doing very well at all of them. Yeah, well, I wrote the book knowing that it wasn't going to be for everyone. I really didn't want to, you know, fly this flag of everyone should do it because it really isn't for everyone. Some people do like doing one thing and that's absolutely fine. But I'm someone who changes their mind a lot. I, I'm quite good at working on multiple things. I get bored very easily. My attention span is terrible. I just, I do thrive having a lot on lots of different things. And so I kind of found my people through that book, like all the people that bought it, um, said they they needed it and maybe that's sort of what I've done with Olive as well in a weird way and on Olive then what has the feedback been because I know that the reason you kind of picked this subject as well is because you looked at your bookshelves and didn't see uh I don't think any probably um protagonists who were child free uh or who weren't kind of desperate to have, have a child so what have you kind of found an audience there and people feeling like oh thank god finally somebody's written a book like this yeah it's been quite emotional actually and um, whenever I get long messages sent to me, I kind of have to go and make a cup of tea and sit down and read them because th- this is people really opening up to me and I really want to take it seriously and make sure I'm replying properly because, you know, I'm just getting stories of people saying, you know, I'm in my 20s, I'm sat on a train going back to my hometown and I've just realised this is me and I'm not weird and I'm not alone and I'm not a complete freak um, and just for that moment to happen through a book is really special, I think. Yeah, and you had an interesting way of doing your research because you sent out a tweet um, in 2018 asking women for opinions on being child-free by choice. How much did that, I mean, it, each chapter starts with one of these quotes, I think, that are directly from the responses you got. So how did that tweet and that research shape the book? I loved speaking to those women. My emails were just full of stories and I loved it. And I think there was a real kind of community feel because these women, they were just like, we don't feel seen in popular culture. We exist, like come and come and um, show us in something. And actually they were so open for that reason. I think they just want, had so much to share. And it's just so interesting how they all had similar stories of just people feeling suspicious of them. And I found that so intriguing that we are suspicious of women who don't follow the rules. We always have been ever since we used to, you know, go on witch hunts like back in the day. Like we don't like women who say, no, sorry, I'm going to opt out of all of this. So they were they were incredible. Emma, do you think that's because like, again, you mentioned insecurity earlier on. Do you think it's because it's a sort of a, we're all doing this. And if you're not doing it, you're making us have to question why we went along with it all. I think that's what is at the heart of it. But that doesn't get um, articulated as much as it should, I think. Yeah. And I was worried, actually, that I really, really didn't want this to be a book about just that. And that's why I think the overall theme really for me is friendship, because I am so proud of my friends who have had quite a tough ride with motherhood. And Honestly, I just I'm in awe and I think they are just wonderful. And I just wanted to show the love of 
a friend going, Olive, I get it. You don't want them. Come here, have a hug. You're not weird. And then for the for the mum who's having a tough time, for Olive to go, I see you. I see how hard it is. Um, I will always be here for you. And that was like really what I wanted. And for people with kids to read Olive and enjoy it was really important for me. Yeah, I mean, I really think you've done that. And what you're saying is that there's a place for all of it, that it doesn't have to be either or, and that we don't have to be suspicious of either either the choice to have children or not have children, that we can kind of coexist and support each other. And I love that, yes, the book is about much more. And it really, at the heart of it, is about friendship. And speaking of that, tell me about Dorothy, who's this older character in the book who befriends Olive. Uh, Tell us about the message that she brings to the story. So, yeah, she's definitely a character who was placed there for a reason. But I really wanted Olive to have an older friend. I just I'm quite obsessed with just talking to like elderly people. I just I think we need to sit them down and talk to them as much as we can and and record their stories and take it all in. Um, so, yeah, she's a lovely uh, older character in the book, full of wisdom. And she has a son who moved to Australia when he was younger uh, and hasn't seen him for, for decades, basically. And really, I just wanted to show that, you know, a lot of the responses child free by choice women get is, aren't you going to be lonely when you're older? Who's going to look after you? Um, I'm worried about you. And I just wanted to show someone like Dorothy, who did have kids. She wasn't that close to her kids and she was fine. And I thought it was just important to have someone like that in the book. Yeah. Um, And what are you working on now? Because actually, just before we talk about that, was it difficult going into fiction when you'd kind of been, you know, in the podcast world and the kind of nonfiction world? Did you feel like you kind of had to be a bit furtive writing Olive and that it was something a bit to keep a bit secret for a while? Definitely. It was a real confidence crisis, if I'm being honest, because I think we all think, who am I to try this? Like, I'm not I haven't taken a creative writing degree not that you need one, but I just, I did have massive imposter syndrome, really bad imposter syndrome to the point where my agent was like, you're being very clingy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I had to sort of, uh, yeah, just get on with it really and give it a go. And your first draft is going to be terrible, but um, it's literally just putting the layers on it really. It sounded like just from the tweet and the research, you took a little bit of a journalistic approach to it in terms of maybe structuring it or getting the content anyway. Definitely. And I think for anyone who has written nonfiction and is moving into it, um, it does take a lot of work because you're kind of unpicking your old habits. And I know that the first draft was definitely too much about me, probably. (laughs) I was trying to not, you know, Olive has changed over time into not being me. But the first draft, you're getting kind of the guts down. And also probably it was too journalistic. So um, it was too many drafts. And I'm so glad it's over because it's it's a labour of love for sure. Uh, And I should ask you too, I mean, obviously it is fiction, but what are your own thoughts on having children or not having children? If you don't mind me asking, having just said it's not something you should ask anyone, but I suppose I'm interviewing you, so it's okay. Yeah, no, definitely. And also, I really didn't mind that question coming up. I think what is interesting is we do assume more than more than with men that women write about themselves. But a part of me is like, I think that's slightly true, maybe. I don't know. I just know that maybe it's interesting that we don't ask men if it's autobiographical. But I don't know. Olive was, so I'm not going to pretend it's not. And I quite enjoyed writing some first-person pieces around it because, you know, for those women who might be confused, I just really wanted them to feel like they could read my work and feel like they were 
kind of working out their own thoughts about it. So if I could offer up a personal essay alongside the book, I was more than happy to do that. Um, but yeah, for me, honestly, I, I, I've always known, I think, that I, I don't think I want to have my own children. That's not to say I might not do it in other ways in the future, but I just don't have the urge. And that's what's interesting about all this is you do feel a bit weird and you think, well, if there was a pill out there where you could take it and just immediately get broody, you know, would I take it just to feel more normal? Maybe. But it's how I feel. Well, I think it's a, it's a great conversation. And what are you working on now? And are you hooked by fiction? Is that kind of where you're going to stay? Well, I feel very, very lucky that I signed two novels to HarperCollins. So I kind of have no choice now. I've got to crack on with the next one. That's always um, good motivation, <laughs> isn't it? When you're forced into it by a, a contract. <laughs> I know. And it's a weird one because the first book was like the secret hobby I was working on. And then this this one is like, you know, you've been paid for it now. Go and write it. So um, hopefully it will it won't be as tricky to write. <laughs> and are you taking a similar approach? I mean, have you got a subject that you want to explore is that how you're you're kind of going forward with it? Yes, definitely. Um, but I've got to be honest, I have felt a bit of a drought of ideas during this time. And I think it's something to do with being inside a lot. Um, I'm someone that gets my ideas from overhearing people in cafes, being very nosy, sitting on the bus and just like listening to people talk. So I'm hoping once I get out in the real world again, I can get some bigger ideas again. And how, speaking of the pandemic, are you in London, Emma? Yes, yeah, I am. So how has it been? Because, I mean, you know, we went a bit earlier than you guys in terms of lockdown and all of that stuff. And there's been a lot of criticism, I suppose, of how Boris Johnson and the government has handled things. What's your take on, on the way things have been approached over there? It's been really, really tricky because, you know, the, the communication was just so confusing. Like there were all these memes going around being like, you can only hang out with two people who share your birth date, who are wearing hats and you can only meet them on Tuesday afternoons for five minutes. Like, we just, we were all getting it wrong because we didn't understand what he was talking about. So the communication's been terrible, but um, I do see a light at the end of the tunnel now, and we just need to get through Christmas, I think. And hopefully, fingers crossed, 2021 has a vaccine in sight, and, you know, we'll see the other side of it. Yeah. Well, whatever happens, you have to write that book, Emma. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> listen it's been lovely talking to you and tell us about your podcast before you go as well just so people know about it and what goes on in that it's called control alt delete and it's interviewing creative people about their careers and their online life and um yeah it's really fun and i love doing it brilliant well emma gannon it's been a pleasure to talk to your big admirers of you here on the podcast and the novel is called olive and it is a really excellent read so thanks a lot emma and the best of luck with the next one Thank you so much. I'm a long-time listener of this podcast, so thank you so much. That's all we have time for today. Thanks to Emma Gannon. And the book, again, is called Olive. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. We'll be back with a lovely Christmas story for you on Christmas Eve. But until then, stay safe, mind yourselves, and I'll talk to you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.